When Charles Dickens wrote his famous book, A Christmas Carol, with Scrooge and Tiny Tim and all those guys, Dickens really knew how to grab your attention at the beginning of a book. He begins A Christmas Carol with, Marley was dead to begin with. (laughs) And that gets your attention. Who is Marley? And then in the last part of the book, we see that great contrast where he says to Tiny Tim, who did not die, and I always think of the Muppet Christmas Carol version when they say that part, who did not die. (laughs) And so we have Marley, who is dead, the contrast at the end, Tiny Tim, who did not die, and all that hope and anticipation. Charles Dickens begins another one of his books with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And so begins Charles Dickens' classic work, A Tale of Two Cities. The French Revolution had brought the worst of times and the best of times to both Paris and London. And Dickens' words were, of course, descriptive of the mood of his own time, but these very same words can be said about our time. They're descriptive of our time. In many ways, we in America are experiencing the best times in the world, best times the world has ever known, but we're also experiencing in many other ways the worst of times. And the same can be said about the time when Jesus came into this world, the time just prior to the birth of Christ. It was a time of great expectation. I'm not going to try that one again. Expectation. (laughs) A time of, of great hope. But it was also a time of great urgency on account of the misery and the despair that people were feeling. Just like many people today, the people of Israel experienced the emotional extremes of both despair and hope, and sometimes they felt both emotions at the very same time. It was the worst of times. The hated Romans occupied the land. Cruel soldiers walked the streets. They crucified the zealots who had tried to drive out the Romans, and they hung them on crosses. So it wasn't unusual to walk into Jerusalem and see crosses lining the roads as a warning against those who would uh, stand against the might of Rome. The taxes of Rome, along with the taxes collected by Herod and the taxes collected at the temple tax, kept the people in poverty. And so a mood of despair had settled among many of the people. And it really hadn't been all that year, many years before this that the people had experienced a great victory over their enemies. You probably remember the name Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a type or a picture of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. In the second century BC, Antiochus Epiphanes was all mad and ticked off because the Romans had stood against him. He wanted to conquer Egypt. And when the Romans stood against him, he decided to take it out on Jerusalem. So he returned to Jerusalem. He massacred thousands of people. He plundered the temple. He commanded the Jews to worship a Greek idol that he had set up in the temple. 
He put an end to the daily sacrifices in the temple. He polluted the altar of God by offering swine flesh upon it. He forbids circumcision, the observance of the Sabbath, and he passed a law against owning a copy of the Torah, the Word of God. And when the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans, as they Hasmoneans as they came to be known, liberated Jerusalem and Judea from the Syrians, they had been looked to as messiahs. They were called messiahs. Judas Maccabeus liberated and cleansed the temple. He declared an eight-day festival known as the Festival of Lights. And there was a miracle of light because they didn't have enough oil for the menorah for it to burn all, all eight days. And yet it did. To this day, they still celebrate that festival. It's called Hanukkah. And in fact, on our calendar, Hanukkah begins at sundown today. This is the first day of Hanukkah at sundown. But just prior to the time of Jesus, the people in Israel once again subservient to a foreign power. In Rome, Herod the Great, an Edomite, wasn't even Jewish, had been declared to be king of the Jews by Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian would become Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony said to Herod, you are the king of the Jews. That's why Herod freaked. We'll see that in a couple of weeks when these magi from the east come rolling into town and say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And Herod just totally freaks out. The problem for Herod was he had been declared king of the Jews, but he had no kingdom. He had to go carve out his own kingdom. He had to militarily drive out the Parthians. And then Herod had the last Hasmonean ruler killed, and he took the throne, and deep despair settled on the people. And so Rome controlled Herod as a, as a puppet government, and the Jewish rulers first tried to compromise with Rome and with Herod. When that didn't work, they tried to assassinate Herod the Great, and when that failed, Rome crushed their revolt unmercifully. But it was also the best of times in many ways. The Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, provided that part of the world with a great measure of political stability. Roman law brought order to the land. Progress and commerce came to Israel because of the Roman road system and those kind of things. There was political stability. There was economic stability. And as I was thinking about this, I kept thinking about in our country, every time we come to a national election, it's what? It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> you know. And, and so they had the economy, stupid. They had the military stability, but they were not free. But best of all, Herod the Great, it was a political maneuver, but he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He rebuilt the temple. In fact, the reason he was called the Great was because of the architectural marvels that he built during his time. And so the temple, with its worship, with its prayers, its sacrifices, all that took place within the walls and the gates of the temple were central and crucial to the messianic hopes and aspirations of God's people. Alfred Edersheim, in his classic book, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, gives us a vivid in, uh, description of how important the temple was to God's people. He writes, Wherever a Roman, a Greek, or an Asiatic might wonder, he could take his gods with him, or find rights kindred to his own. It was far otherwise with the Jew. He had only one temple, that in Jerusalem, only one God, him who had once throned there between the cherubim, 
and who was still king over Zion. The temple was the only place where a God-appointed pure priesthood could offer acceptable sacrifices, whether for forgiveness of sin or for fellowship with God. Here in the impenetrable gloom of the innermost sanctuary, which the high priest alone might enter once a year for most solemn expiation, had stood the Ark of the Covenant, the leader of the people into the land of promise, and the footstool on which the Shekinah had rested. From that golden altar rose the cloud of incense, symbol of Israel's accepted prayers. That seven-branched candlestick shed its perpetual light, indicative of the brightness of God's covenant presence. At the tables, it were, before the face of Jehovah was laid week by week, quote, the face, the bread of the face, a constant sacrificial meal which Israel offered unto God. And wherewith God in turn fed his chosen priesthood. On the great blood-sprinkled altar of sacrifice smoked the daily and festive burnt offerings, brought by all Israel and for all Israel, wherever scattered, while the vast courts of the temple were thronged not only by native Israelites, but literally by Jews out of every nation under heaven. Around this temple gathered the sacred memories of the past, to it clung the yet brighter hopes of the future. And then Edersheim gets into just how important the temple was to the life, the prosperity, and the hopes for Israel just prior to when Jesus was born. He continues, The history of Israel and all their prospects were intertwined with their religion, so that it may be said that without their religion, they had no history. And without their history, no religion. Thus history, patriotism, religion, and hope alike pointed to Jerusalem and the temple as the center of Israel's unity. Even in those worst of times, the people of God had hope because the temple of the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was in their midst. And as they saw it, they were able to keep covenant with God by maintaining their worship, the sacrificial system, and all that God required of them. And they believed that God would keep his covenant with them and that he would restore their nation. The messianic hope, the great expectation of what we call Christmas. Turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 at verse 1, third chapter of Malachi, page 1185. Being the last book appropriately in the Old Testament, Malachi was the last prophet of God prior to 600 or rather 400 years of silence when God did not speak again. God was silent by way of prophets for over 400 years. Now, we know from the New Testament that silence is going to be broken by John the Baptist that we talked about last week, the last Old Testament prophet, the messenger who will prepare the way for the Messiah. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, through the prophet Malachi, God speaks, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. We know that's going to be John the Baptist. And he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Here we see that great messianic expectation, the coming of the Lord to his temple, to that place that is so important to the life and the prosperity of the people of God. In the worst of times, the Lord will suddenly appear and come to his temple, and he will come to the center of all that Israel is and all that Israel hopes. And so by the time Jesus came into this world, the people were caught up in a frenzy of what's been called messianic emotionalism. The coming of the promised Messiah gripped the hearts and the minds of the people. And it wasn't just in Judea, of which is the province of which Jerusalem was the capital, Judea. It was a worldwide phenomenon. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote that people in the East, or what we call the Middle East, believed that their region would grow to be mighty militarily. And that proceeding from Judea, of all places, would come someone who would rule the world. So that's a Roman historian who said, this is, this is their thinking, this is what they think. And the Jewish historian Josephus wrote at that time that there was an oracle or a saying which stated that one from Judea would arise and become governor of the inhabited earth. The messianic emotionalism, as can be expected, sparked all kinds of false messiahs at this time. Josephus writes of a certain magician by the name of Thutis, and this Thutis persuaded a great number of people to follow him down to the Jordan River. And he told them that he was a prophet, he would command the waters, they would divide, and they would have easy passage to cross and go on the other side. Of course, he didn't succeed. And then the book of Acts, as Gamaliel is talking in the Sanhedrin, he refers to a different man by the name of Thutis, who boasted himself to be somebody to whom a number of men followed. About 400 joined themselves. This Thutis was slain, and those who obeyed him were scattered. And then Gamaliel goes to talk about another man called Judas of Galilee, who drew away people to follow him. He too perished, and his followers were scattered. The point that Gamaliel was making before the Sanhedrin when he mentioned Thutis and Judas was that False messiahs were all over the place in those days, and they were calling people to themselves. And what he was saying was, well, if the message of the apostles of Jesus Christ is from God, then it's going to take care of itself. If it's not from God, it's going to take care of itself. And many of these false messiahs drew large numbers of people after them. Here's the interesting thing when it comes to this kind of expectation. The expectation of the coming of the Messiah was so strong that even after repeated disappointments, one false Messiah after another, as one writer put it, the people were ready to store up in their bosom the most impossible anticipations. The Roman yoke of oppression stirred up the anxiety of many, and not a few times did the people rise to the height of delirium and frenzy. You know, they, they would just, oh, maybe this is it. This, this guy's got to be him. No, this one's it. And they were just so scared, so fifth, fearful in their inner beings that, you know. You know, Josephus even talks about uh, the Jewish philosophers in Alexandria, Egypt. And the Jewish philosophers, they allegorized everything. Nothing was literal in the Old Testament in, in Alexandria. You know, so, it, you know, there really weren't uh, an Adam and Eve. That's just symbolic of something. We get that today all, all over the place, you know. But even the Jewish philosophers in Alexandria point to 
they said, outside Israel, all eyes were directed towards Judea. And each pilgrim had hand, each pilgrim band on its return or wayfaring brother on his journey might bring tidings of startling events. So you got these guys that allegorize everything. Every time somebody came back to Alexandria, been to Judea, what's happening? Who is it? Is the Messiah come yet? The whole world at the time was looking to Jerusalem. It wasn't just the anticipation of the Jews who were looking towards this. Now, the main emphasis at the time was on a royal and militant Messiah. They looked for a militant Messiah, powerful rulers, a King David, one who would sit on David's throne, who would throw off the yoke of the Roman oppression and that of Herod, who would bring victory and prosperity to the Jewish nation. And they also understood that it was going to take supernaturalism, that human power alone could not accomplish this. You know, it's interesting, you know, they didn't reject Jesus when he came. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't reject Jesus when he came because of the statements he always made about being God. It was because he, being a mere man, had no right to make those statements. They expected their Messiah to be either the Lord himself or one that was uh, endowed by the Lord with supernatural power. One writer said, only the cataclysmic intervention of a divinely endowed being at the moment of the nation's deepest degradation could destroy the wicked powers which oppressed it, restore the people cleansed by suffering, and rebuild the broken harmonies of the world. So they expected this divine endued person, either God himself, the Lord himself to come, or one who had the supernatural power from God. The people believed in what was called an epiphany. An epiphany is appearance of a God in, in human form. They believed it was imminent in order to save the human race from all that was going on. They believed in a golden age. They believed the millennium was at hand. Does that sound familiar? Just like our times, isn't it? Every Sunday morning in Sunday school class, we come up with something else that points that, you know, it's very soon that the Lord is returning. The great expectation was that according to the prophets, God would send Messiah into the world. And that's where we turn once again to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 at verse 6. Holy longings filled the hearts of the people. They clung to the words of the prophet Isaiah. In verse 6 of chapter 9, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The people of God in the first century were living in this hope, holding on to this dream of a homeland which was free from Roman oppression, independent, centered on God's law. They saw a united Israel that would freely and fully worship God. And into this good times, bad times world, Jesus came. The world had grown hard, it had grown cynical, but there was a breath of hope blowing across the hearts of the people as well, there was a sense that God was about to do something wonderful. 
God's good news was coming into a bad news world. Up in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah prophesied, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Light and darkness at the same time, good news and bad news at the same time. And the first thing that we need to realize about this this morning is this, that God's good news is greater than the world's bad news. Do you really believe that? (laughs) God's good news is greater than the world's bad news. Turn over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, for a moment. Because John uses these same images of light and and darkness. My Bible defaults to 1 John now. (laughs) Gospel of John, chapter 1. Where John uses the same image of light and darkness that Isaiah used in the coming of Christ. He's, you know, I'm going to start at verse 1 because, uh, because of all the stuff that's before verse 5 here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then he says, echoing the words of Isaiah, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not, my translation that I'm using says comprehend it. I don't like that translation, even though it's the New American Standard and I use it. It's really not the best translation. It would be better, the darkness could not extinguish it. The Greek literally means the darkness could not take it down. The light of the world came into the world and the darkness could not take it down. It could not conquer it. It could not overpower it. You see, darkness is negative. Darkness is what? Simply the absence of light. It's a negative. Darkness has no power of its own. All the darkness in the world cannot extinguish a single candle. You ever think about that? But light is a positive force. It does overcome darkness every time. You know, many of the churches I've served, and being an architect, it seems like in in a lot of them, they put all the right light switches in all the wrong places. And especially in Elko, Nevada, where my office was off the back of the sanctuary, or the front of the sanctuary, whichever, you know, and uh, the restroom was completely downstairs. And I remember those days, this time of year, when at 3.30 in the afternoon, it started to get dark in Elko, being in Pacific time. And then, of course, by 5 o'clock quitting time, it was just totally black. And I'd have to leave my office where I could have the light on. I'd have to walk through a dark sanctuary. I'd have to go downstairs through a dark hallway because all the light switches were at the wrong, the wrong place. And so I just got in the habit of not turning on any light switches until I got downstairs because when I came back, I'd have to turn off the lights, go up a dark stairs, go through a dark sanctuary and back through. And so one time when I went downstairs, I was coming back up in the dark and going up the stairs to the sanctuary and there were two shadowy figures standing right there at the top of the stairs. And I just about passed out. My heart was thumping and beating and I go, oh, what is this? And two transients had come through my outside door of my office and and followed me down, you know, to that far. And I just, it was just horrible. From that point on, I, I locked the door to my office, the outside door, and then went and did my thing. And 
and made sure. But, uh, you know, that's darkness. When it's dark, you know, our imagination does funny things. There could be people hiding anywhere. They could be doing anything. Darkness creates all kinds of illusions. But if I turn on one light or light a small candle, I can see everything. You know, I used to give my brother a bad time because he was one of those nerdy guys that always had this big roll of keys on his, <laughs> on his thing. I thought, that looks really stupid. That looks really nerdy. Well, well, now I followed him in that because I always carry a flashlight in my Leatherman. <laughs> but, but I appreciate the flashlight because when I can't see, I can, I can do it. And if we go into a room and we turn on a light, we don't stumble over things, we don't trip into things. You know, your, your wife puts toe stumbler all over the place <laughs> in, the, in the bedroom. You know, it's so, so light, when we turn on a little bit of a light, we can see very clearly. But when the lights are on, there's no way that the darkness can dispel it. Light overcomes darkness. It's not the other way around. And the same thing is true with the light of the kingdom of of Jesus Christ. The darkness can never put it out. God's light has come into the world to overcome the darkness, and the darkness is helpless against it. It can only create illusions. It's good at that. But light helps us to see what is real. The light of the sun overpowers the darkness of the solar system, and the sun's light brings warmth and light to every planet in the solar system. See those pictures of Pluto this last week? Yeah, what's lighting up Pluto? As far as it is out there, you know, I I said when I saw that, well, it's too bad they demoted Pluto to not being a planet anymore. And Elizabeth said from the, oh, no, it's a planet again. I said, well, that's stupid too. But even Pluto, that's so far out there, it still has the light of the sun on it. Light is greater than darkness, and God's good news is always greater than the world's bad news. There's not even any comparison. You know, I suppose if you only listen to Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or any of the major networks or only listen to the radio talk shows, you would think, that there's only darkness in the world, right? Only bad news. But you know, if you start your day reading the good news, if you spend your day meditating on God's word and thinking and pondering about the good news, the 5.30 evening news can't overpower it. It can't do it. We can say with Paul, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise we have from God in 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The second thing we need to understand is that God's good news transforms the world's bad news. God's good news transforms the world's bad news. Because God's good news is greater than the world's bad news, it's not only able to overcome it, but also transforms it. What's that great promise of Romans 8.28? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I think of that time when in, uh, Joseph was taken into slavery into Egypt because his brothers had sold him into slavery. And there's that scene in the last chapter of, of the book of Genesis where the people are coming. His, his brothers are before him and, and Joseph reveals that I am your brother and... Uh, And he says to his brothers, 
What you meant was for evil, but God intended it for good. That it can even, you know, God can take the bad things and even transform them into the good things. He can transform all things. The only power that darkness has is to convince people that there is no light. Do you ever think about that? That's the only thing darkness can do. Say, hey, there's no light here. And again, I think of that headline in the New York Daily News where after the shooting in San Bernardino and things, the big headline, full-page headline says, God isn't fixing this. And trying to say, there's no light. You know, we've got to do it ourselves. And that just set a slew of mocking of Christians and prayers that is just in, in, incredible. People trying to say that there is no hope. There is no God. The prayer doesn't do any good. But darkness, when it tries to drive hope away, light brings the hope. Isaiah said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. You know, when I read that verse, I'm reminded of September 11th, 2001. All the images of hate and destruction that we saw on our TV sets. We saw those same kind of images rekindled in Paris and Boston. San Bernardino, in every place where ISIS stretches its destructive power and, and message of hate and destruction. One pastor says he remembers visiting a hospital room on September 11, 2001. A woman in his church gave birth to a new baby that morning. Can you imagine having on your birth certificate September 11, 2001? He said he went into the hospital room and the TV in the, the room was on and you could see the images of the burning towers and the destruction. And then he said he looked over and saw the baby in his mother's arms. Two different worlds, one light, one darkness. The good news is greater than the bad news. Even the Romans' execution of Jesus could not extinguish the light. Because the good news that Jesus, that God would do on account of the cross, would transform the worst the world would try to do. God's good news would turn evil into good and curses into blessing. It was the worst of times, but the best of times had come in the person of Jesus Christ. Messiah had come to earth. He would love the world and bring light to it. He would teach us his ways and then become the sacrifice for our sins. He would then rise from a grave which was helpless to hold him and destroy death and take his seat at the right hand of the Father where he speaks on your behalf. And the thing that we need to understand lastly in this is that God's good news will do away with the world's bad news. Did you know that because of Jesus Christ coming into the world, the day is coming when bad news will no longer exist? Think about that. Bad news will, not, will no longer exist even in our, our memories. The Bible also has a tale of two cities. You don't need to turn to it, but it's in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation tells about that eternal struggle between the city of evil called Babylon and the city of God called the New Jerusalem. 
The Bible tells us that these two kingdoms are growing up side by side like wheat and weeds until the end of time. Side by side, evil and good exist together in the world. The best of times and the worst of times all at the same time. Parallel kingdoms operating in this world. And Babylon represents the worst of times. It has spread its bad news throughout the world. It's an evil empire, but God was going to destroy it. The Bible says that when they see the smoke of Babylon burning, they will exclaim, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mooring, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. It's going to be hard for people at that time to believe how quickly God destroys that evil city. But it'll be just as incredible to see how quickly God brings the new city. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, describes it in his vision. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The old order will pass away. The good news has overcome the bad news for eternity. And our woodpecker is back. I haven't heard him for a year or so. <laughs> yeah, that anticipation of the, the holy city, Jerusalem. I remember when I was in seminary and I had to do a, a complete workbook and, and a study on Jerusalem. And, and I had pictures in it of Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah, Jerusalem in the time of Jesus and the temple and, and other things. And, and I, as I came to that passage of scripture, I said a report on Jerusalem just wouldn't be complete without the new Jerusalem. And uh, Elizabeth, being the night person she was, she'd been looking over my shoulder this whole time, seeing what pictures I would get and those kind of things. She was about 11 years old, and it was probably 2 or 2.30 in the morning. you know. And so I, I Googled the New Jerusalem, see what kind of picture would come up. And this, this picture came up, the New Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And Elizabeth said, oh, I knew it would look just like that. <laughs> that's, I said, that's it. That goes in, in the report. But you have to be looking for good news if you're going to find good news. Elizabeth was looking for good news. You have to believe that God brings the best of times even in the midst of the worst of times. You have to receive the good news into your heart and make it part of your life. Medical science tells us that if you were to be shut up in a totally dark room for just a few months you'd completely lose your sight. And you'd also lose the ability to regain your sight. Muscles and nerves atrophy. And eventually sight is no longer possible, even if you're brought back into the light. You live in spiritual darkness long enough, you lose your spiritual eyes. But the good news is this. Jesus is still in the business of healing. He's still in the business of bringing light into the world. You can come to him for salvation, for, 
for the healing of your spiritual condition. You can walk out of the darkness as the Holy Spirit draws you out of the darkness into his light. And you can live in the good news of the light. I think so like so many people, even Christians, if I can quote or talk about Darth Vader, new Star Wars is coming out, so it's probably okay. But like Darth Vader, we have that tendency to go over to the dark side. And we live in pessimism and we live in despair. We, we look for the worst and we fail to believe the best. It's so easy to believe in the power of darkness as we turn on the news and look at what's going on in our world. It seems so strong at times. It appears to be all around us. Everyone seems to be giving into it and we feel overwhelmed and alone. And then we remember the words of Isaiah. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not take it down. Shall we pray? Fathers, we'll be coming to your table this morning, the table of our Lord, and and talking about the light who came into the world, the one who died on the cross for our sins and invites us to come to his table and to remember him. Father, I just pray that whatever the dark things are that are weighing heavily on our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord, that your light would shed light on all of them. That we'd be able to see through the eyes of faith, Lord, that you are bringing us into all the promises that you have for And whatever it is that we go through in this world and whatever the world throws at us and whatever the world tries to tell us is true, Father, just keep bringing us back into your light. As John put it, help us to walk in the light instead of the darkness. Help us to walk with Christ and be in fellowship with him and one another in communion with him. And we see that wonderful expression as we'll gather around the Lord's table today and we will partake of his body and his blood. And Father, we will fellowship with him and one another in the light, in the light. And we pray for this in Jesus' name.